when we walk through an expositional series like this, which means we are actually going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, throughout a book, in order to be able to uh, grab hold of uh, what's said in there, sometimes, you know, when, when you preach topically, it's easy for folks to think, you know, maybe he's aiming for somebody or whoever on our preaching team, if we're, if we're doing a series. And sometimes we are aiming just to help folks with a particular issue. Uh, but when we're going through uh, expositional series, what's wonderful about that is you just kind of take the text as it comes and then you grab hold of it and jump in. And so this morning we're in Mark 13, and it is a, uh, one of the prophetic passages in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. John sort of is standalone. Uh, but there are prophetic passages in these, Matthew 24, Luke 17 and 21, Mark 13. These are standard passages that deal with what sometimes people think are the signs of the end. So the question will be this morning, is signs of the end of what? So that's sort of my uh, title, signs of the end question mark that we're looking at today. And as we as we do this, I want to jump in and just answer the question, first of all, what is eschatology? It's kind of a $100 word that uh, is academic, that seminarians use. Uh, you will hear preachers use it. And if you're interested in reading about prophecy, then you're probably familiar with this word. Now, don't think for a second that you're less than a Christian if you've never heard of it before, because it's really not going to make a huge difference in your life just because you understand what this big $100 word eschatology means. It's a theological term, and I want to give you a definition on the screen. This is my own personal definition that I've sort of put together with a number of Bible dictionaries to try to be as clear as possible. And so just look along with me. I'll read out loud. Eschatology is the study of the doctrine of last things. Everybody say last things. Okay, anytime you see ology, you'll remember this from school. It is the study of. So biology is the study of life. Uh, Archaeology is the study of uh, old rocks, okay? Uh, anthropology is the study of man, so on and so forth. Zoology, the study of animal life. So eschatology, we look at eschatos or eschaton, and it literally is last things, okay? We're talking about ultimate things. And when we... When we, when we deal with this, we're talking about what happens in the eternal state. After you die, a final judgment, being in the presence of God, the judgment being declared, and you, you're being in heaven or in, in hell, okay? And so as a Orthodox Christian church here in West Memphis called Victory Church, we believe in those things that I just listed. You will find those in the Apostles' Creed. They're critical issues over which we will not split hairs or argue. Those are called essentials of the faith, okay? But now eschatology itself is not one of those. It is not an essential, okay? How you sort of chart this out and, and draw it out or paint it uh, in terms of how you think the last things are going to fall into place, how you believe about that is not going to make a difference in your salvation. So we're going to underline that a few times today. So here we go. Last things that involves the interpretation of prophetic passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testaments. These interpretations are categorized according to the particular view of a literal or a figurative millennium. Everybody say millennium. Millennium is, means a thousand years, which can be a thousand literal years, or it can just be a very long time, depending on which one of these views you have. If it 
is a literal, then it would be literally 365 days a thousand times, okay? Uh, some Bible scholars would say those are actually 360 days and not 365, and that's another rabbit I don't want to chase. Uh, or if it's figurative, it could be thousands of years, okay? If you, if you interpret Revelation symbolically or allegorically. Uh, now let me just say, and this millennium that you have here in your notes on the left side of your page, it says, and it's defined as how it relates chronologically to the second coming of Christ. So every one of these views believe that Jesus is coming back. Let me just underline that in your thinking, I believe, we believe, victory teaches that Jesus Christ is coming again. Somebody say amen. If you heard me, say amen. Okay. Now, there are four big major views, actually three major ones, and one is a subset of, of one of the major ones. And if you look at these, you will see particularly premillennialism. Everybody say that with me. Say premillennialism. Then jump down to postmillennialism, say that, postmillennialism, and then finally ah, ah millennialism. Okay? So those three, dif the differences in those three are the prefix. The prefix is giving you the place where Christ is coming back. Premillennialists believe that the second coming occurs pre millennium, before a literal thousand year reign. Okay? Postmillennialists believe that Jesus is coming back after probably a figurative, a long time, like the last couple of thousand years. Okay, Some postmillennialists believe in a literal thousand-year millennium, but he's coming back at the end of it. Okay, And then we have finally ah millennialism. Everybody say ah millennialism. That means no literal millennial at all. It's basically that the eternal state, heaven, hell, is basically you die and that is the kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, certainly believe in a spiritual kingdom right now, but they don't believe in any kind of literal manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, before you get all up in arms and get offended at me even saying things that might sound different to you, let me just say that the Bible Belt is saturated with probably, uh, if you've grown up in a Baptist or a Pentecostal church, you have really become familiar with what you will find as the subset under premillennialism. Everybody say dispensationalism. Okay, dispensationalism is the view that if you watch Christian TV, you would think that it's actually the majority view of Christians, and it's really not. It's just that the dispensationalists seem to raise the best offerings and buy the most television time. Okay? Uh, a recent survey showed in Christianity Today uh, of a whole host of number that were polled, 17% of the American body of Christ, and that is across the whole denominational spectrum, embrace the dispensational view. With it, we get what we call the pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus is going to come and catch away the church, the bride, pull us out of the planet for seven years while the Antichrist and the beast wreak havoc all over the earth and a period called the Great Tribulation, which, by the way, you don't find that in the Bible, the phrase Great Tribulation, okay? Uh, dispensationalism is the newest kid on the block. It came at the same time that all the occult, I mean, all the cults arose with uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Christ, the, the Christian scientists, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, all of those that do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, God the Son. They believe He's the Son of God, but not God the Son. Now, I just want to say to you that being the new kid on the block, they've really arisen with a lot of fervor 
and stirred up a lot of, of uh, dust in uh, Christian circles. And a lot of people who teach that particular idea literally give the idea that if you don't believe that way, that you're, you're a heretic. And let me just show you the reason that I took time to print this out is because of premillennialists there, those are what we call historic or classical premillennialists. You have Charles Spurgeon. That's the world's most famous Baptist preacher. When dispensationalism started to be proclaimed in England in the mid-1800s, he declared it to be a heresy and wrong. And so Spurgeon fought against it. Um, we've got George Eldon Ladd, Albert Moeller. Some of you might be uh, akin or enough to know what's going on kind of in the body of Christ today that Albert Moeller is a speaks to a lot of uh, cultural and political issues. He's the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, he is uh, the president, I think currently, of uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the flagship seminaries of the Southern Baptist Church. So he is not a dispensationalist. He is what is called a classical premillennialist. Francis Schaeffer, one of my heroes, who is referred to as the greatest evangelical theologian of the 20th century. He is a Presbyterian he is what we call a classical, historic premillennialist, okay? Not going to take a long time on this, but I want you to look. Dispensationalism, you see Charles Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible. Tim LaHaye, the guy who wrote the Left Behind series. Dr. Adrian Rogers, who pastored probably 30-plus years over here at Bellevue Baptist Church. These are great men of God for which we hold in high esteem and honor, and we love them. Charles Swindoll is another one of my heroes. I grew up listening to Chuck Swindoll and still thinks he is, is one of the greatest things since sliced bread. I do not agree with those brothers' eschatology right there. That doesn't mean that they're wrong and that I'm right. doesn't mean that I'm right and, or they're right and I'm wrong. doesn't mean anybody's going to hell. It shows you right here that when we start to deal with eschatology, that there are differing opinions and views on how the end times are going to play out. Okay, Look on down with me. If you look underneath classical, you'll see John Nelson Darby. He is referred to as the father of dispensationalism. I grew up with a Schofield Study Bible. How many of you remember the Schofield Study Bible? Any of you have in one of those? I had one of those when I was a young teenager. The, 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 the Word of God in it is fine. It's the notes that will mess you up. Okay. Uh, a number of folks years ago at Dallas Theological Seminary began to realize that classical dispensationalism was a house of cards and falling apart. And so we have the entrance of the guy by the name of Daryl Bach and Craig Blasing from uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, two famous guys who began to propose a whole new kind of in-between dispensationalism and covenantalism called progressive dispensationalism. So these guys realize this thing is it's, it's on the downslide. It's, it's hurting because we've had so many multiplied rapture predictions that have never happened. And the reason that they keep happening and that they're totally incorrect and it never happens is because it's based on a faulty system. The system of dispensationalism is a faulty, wrong-headed system. There are good men who believe it, okay? The far vast majority of Christianity finds itself in one of the other camps, okay? Uh, if you look at, at post-millennialism, all of the Puritans, the guys who were the planting generation in America embraced an uh, a, a, a increase of the kingdom of God, the government of God growing in the earth, the whole city on a hill kind of theology. John Cotton, John Owen, Matthew Henry, some of you who are Bible students, if you read Matthew Henry's commentary, every good Baptist knows Matthew Henry's commentary is a staple. Matthew Henry was a post-millennialist, okay? 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, R.C. Sproul, another one of my heroes, both senior and junior, the dad and the son. Finally, amillennialism. We have St. Augustine, we have Martin Luther, we have John Calvin, we have the late Dr. D. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He's the guy who wrote Evangelism Explosion, Grace, Man, God, Christ, Faith. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you died today you'd go to heaven? A lot of you grew up learning how to witness to people through Dr. D. James Kennedy's evangelism program. So what, the reason I took time to go through that is to show you is that there are good people who love Jesus with all their hearts with all different kinds of ideas about the end times. Okay, So we need to be generous in our thinking at victory because probably you're going to hear some things this morning in the next few minutes that are different from the way you might have ever heard Mark 13 or any of these prophetic passages preached. Okay, So with that, that's just kind of a, a little sort of a kind of a appetizer to show you that we need to be broad in our, in our thinking. We need to be open and we need to be generous when we sit down with people who have differing ideas about the end times because every one of these systems of thinking has holes in it. Every one of them has challenges when you start to ask, well, what about this scripture? They all have two or three problem areas that they go, well, I don't have an answer for that. Okay, The dispensationalist is riddled with holes. Okay, in terms of all kinds of problems. So nobody has all the, the corner on the truth here when it comes to this. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to help us as we move into Mark 13. Help us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are the teacher. Lord, break strongholds, break uh, mentalities of, 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 of not being able to embrace something different or new. God, help us, Lord, to be seekers of truth and to realize that if it is true, anything that I believe, that if, it's, that if it is true, it will withstand the scrutiny of a few questions. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for strength in our lives. Thank you for Jesus who died for us. That's the real critical portion of the gospel anyway. And we'll worship you for all that you are in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, I want to move quickly, very quickly. Number one, here we go. I want you to see, as we look at point number one, the subject of this entire chapter, Mark 13, is the temple and its destruction. Okay. Now, we've already seen God give Moses a tabernacle that was portable. God didn't let David build the temple because he was a man of war and had blood on his hands. His son Solomon, whose, mean, whose name means peace, prince of peace, he builds the first great temple in all of its glory. Israel was carried away into captivity. They, first of all, the, the, the tribes split, 10 to the north, to the south. The 10 northern tribes were carried into Assyrian captivity first and then the southern later with the Babylonian captivity. The temple of Solomon is ransacked. All of the gold is melted, destroyed, carried into the different kingdoms. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom is literally using temple... Uh, uh, instruments to, to be able to just feed common people and it's all completely sacrilegious. It's blasphemous. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to receive judgment upon him because of what, he, what he's done with the people of God and the temple of God. Now, 70 years captivity, they come back and they start a rebuild and it takes a while. Ezra and Nehemiah are dedicated to laying the foundation to the temple and building the walls around the city. By the time Jesus is born, Herod has rebuilt the temple, and it's, it's pretty much glorious. It is not anywhere to compare to what it was in Solomon's day, but they already have a rebuilt temple. Jesus comes on the scene, 
And at the end of his ministry at Mark, we're looking here from the triumphal entry forward the last week of Jesus' life. Okay? So as we open up with Mark chapter 13, number one, the point is the subject of the entire chapter is the temple and its destruction. I'm going to go back to my text. Now listen, here we go. Verses 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that is outrageous news to any Jew, any Hebrew, whose life has been built around the history of, the, the religious observances, the sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and goats, a priesthood into which you must be born right, you have to be of the tribe of Levi, the economy of the temple, all of this is built around what faithful Hebrews and Jews have believed for millennia now. Okay, So for Jesus, who is a revolutionary, who begins to prophesy and say, Boys, the day's coming when not one stone will be left standing. So they perk up their ears and they listen. Point number one, this whole chapter, all of 13, is about the destruction of the temple. Number two, look at this. The end is not the end of the world, but it's the end of their world. The end of the age, the Old Testament temple economy sacrificial system. I'm going to go back to my text and I'm going to read. So the end that we're talking about, as a matter of fact, if you look at this in the ESV translation right here on mine, it says signs of the close of the age. A lot of confusion has happened in our lives because of having grown up hearing preaching out of the King James Version. And a number of times, for like the word love, there are five words for the word love. One means phileo, friendship. Another one means eros, sexual love between a husband and wife. Another one is agapeo, the unconditional kind of love of God. There, there are a couple more. Same thing happens with the word world. Okay, with the word world. There is the habitable earth on which you stand on your feet. There is the cosmos, the order or the arrangement of things. And there's another word, ion, which means the age. Okay. When it calls Satan the prince of this world, he's not the prince of the earth because the earth belongs to the Lord. Okay? Psalm 24, 1. The world and all they that dwell therein, it all belongs to God. The Greek word there in the King James for the world is ion. He's the prince of this age. It's a period of time. Okay? And it's marked. And he has a beginning and he has an ending. And how many of you know he was judged completely at Calvary? The Bible says in the finished work of Christ in Colossians 2.15, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He whipped the devil and he brought a lasting end. Okay, So many times the confusion has come when we thought the word world was the earth is going to burn up and end. It literally is the word age. And that's why we use newer translations like this, the ESV, which is recognized as being the most accurate out there that you can find by academics and Greek scholars right now. This is what it says, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Verse 7, this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, I grew up hearing that this is about the end of the world. And you know what? All it would have taken, unfortunately, by my God-fearing, Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, Christ-centered, Pentecostal pastor, if he'd have just done a little bit of Greek word study, he would have found out that this doesn't mean the earth is ending, but it means the age is ending. Now, what age were they standing in? They were standing in the Old Testament age of sacrifices of blood, of bull and goats, and the temple was the center. Well, guess what just happened? The temple of God came down into and walked into the natural temple, which made the literal temple obsolete. Jesus is now the living temple of God. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me? This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are but, these are but the beginnings of birth pangs. Okay? Point three. Let's look at it. Now, before I, before I jump to point three, I'm sorry, Chloe, you're doing a great job. Let me just say this right now because I want to make sure you get this. It does not make any sense for this passage to speak to the end of the world because they're all running around. What is all the scampering around and saying, hey, you, you better hope it doesn't happen in winter. You better hope you're not pregnant. If it's the end of the world, there's no place you can run from the final judgment of God. You're going to stand in His presence. You, you can't scamper around and run away from that. So it's just common sense that it can't be the end of the world. It has to be the end of their world, the end of the age in which everything has been centered around the temple. Okay, Now, all of these are the beginning of birth pangs. Look at point three. The beginning of birth pangs, literally, is what is about to follow. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When a nation is born in one day on the day of Pentecost, we have the birth of the church, we've got the new creation, and it's given a mission to the world. So now we've got a whole new age that's just begun. And literally what we see here is like two parentheses that are overlapping. If you could see this like this. This one, let's do it this way, is ending on this side. And this one is ending on this side, except they're overlapping. And they're living in this little one generation right here of 40 years where Jesus goes to the cross and His sacrifice ends forever. The blood of bulls and goats. His sacrifice becomes once and for all. Everybody say once and for all. But now, it's going to take one generation before it literally stops the whole temple economy. What Jesus had just done a few days ago by going in and turning over the money tables and the money changers, He halted the sacrificial system just temporarily for that day because people were in there buying sheep and goats and cattle. They were bringing their money and they were buying it so that they could do what the, the temple is about doing. It's about offering sacrifices to please God. Okay, So Jesus shows by turning the tables over, this thing's about to end. He does interrupt it temporarily for a day or so. But what He's going to do at the cross is end it forever. Hebrews says... It's once and for all. There are no more bloods, blood of bulls and goats or sacrifices that can be offered for sin. It is only the blood of Jesus. Somebody say amen. All right. So now the birth pangs that are taking place are what's about to happen with Jesus. And he's dying. He's going to bury, be buried for three days. He's going to be raised up. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father at his ascension. And we're going to see one generation of a huge, tumultuous, tribulationary type change that's taking place. 
Okay. Number four, here we go, doing really well. The destruction of the temple was fulfilled in 70 A.D. It happened in that one generation when Jesus was crucified at the spring of about 31 A.D. And he said, this generation standing here will not pass until they see these things happen. And most Bible scholars will tell you a generation is 40 years. Bump that forward, and it literally happened in that generation from 31 to 70 A.D., and the temple is ransacked. The sacrifices stop. It ends, okay? Number five, the, abomina the abomination of desolation. So let me go back to the text, okay? So as we're reading through here, it says these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Verse 9, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. That can't be for us today. First of all, is, is there a synagogue around here anywhere? No. Okay. It says, you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, as a Pentecostal, I heard that every Sunday night. If you don't endure to the end, you're going to split hell wide open. That has nothing to do with your eternal salvation, it has to do with these people that are living right there in that generation to endure what is about to take place. They're going to endure crazy persecution. We're going to have Roman emperors that's, that are going to capture them, that are going to dip them in tar. They're going, to, they're going to tie them with ropes to posts in their garden in Rome, and they're going to set them on fire, and literally they'll be human candlesticks burning flesh, in literally, in, uh, in, in the courts of Caligula, uh, of, of Domitian, of Diocletian, uh, Nero who fiddled while Rome burned, all of these crazy, some of them would be believed to be demonically possessed emperors during that whole period of history are absolutely honest to God crazy, maniacs, mega maniacal, crazy men who, who throw Christians for the next hundred years to the lions. They endure a kind of tribulation that we don't even understand unless you're living possibly maybe in a, an extreme Islamic country or maybe uh, in China, maybe Russia during the Soviet Union. There was extreme persecution. We as the American church today do not understand real persecution. So, now, you don't have to shout me down. I know I'm telling you the truth this morning. I just want you to see that what we're looking at here is that whole period that they're about to enter into. And Jesus says this, A brother will deliver brother over to the death and his father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? Next, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, everybody say the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. So Mark actually insert something into the text. Let the reader understand is not Jesus' words. Those were Mark's putting them in parenthetically saying, listen to this, pay attention here. When you see the abomination of desolation, which believed by many is an idol in the place of the temple, okay, 
Uh, and there are several things I'm going to share with you that show that's already been fulfilled. This is not a future temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem uh, and an antichrist sitting up a throne over there, okay? Uh, how many times through my own lifetime have we identified leaders, poor old Henry Kissinger and Ronald Wilson Reagan, because his names all had six letters in it, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. And Henry Kissinger, when you add up A is 1 and B is 2 and C is 3 and you take the name Henry Kissinger and you add up all those equivalents of A through Z, 1 through 26, it just happens to equal 666. That was unfortunate for Henry. He's dead. Um, he, he evidently wasn't, wasn't the Antichrist. Okay, Some of you this morning are just sure that Barack is. Uh, and some of you are certain that if Hillary gets elected, that somebody will find that the Antichrist actually is a woman. And that's a joke, okay? Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. Now, if, if nothing else, I'm shaking you up, and I'm going to make you ask some questions. I don't want to make you mad, but a lot of the stuff that we've been taught all of our lives about this is based on a system that has all kinds of problems with it that didn't come about that you can't find in church history. It's the newest kid on the block in terms of prophetic interpretation. Look here. When you see this thing, he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, I want you to hear this. The abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about right here in Mark 13. You'll find it in Matthew 24 and in Luke as well. He's quoting from the book of Daniel. Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. Listen. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So Daniel is seeing visions... And it's difficult to understand. And he says, seal this up for a future time. And what Jesus is saying is what Daniel saw, you're about to see in your generation. Okay? In A.D. 40, the crazy emperor Caligula erected a likeness of himself in the temple of the Jews, which is one fulfillment right there of the abomination of desolation, a false god, an idol being set up in the most holy place, in the temple of God, okay? This was actually after Jesus had already been crucified, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended. So within just a less than a decade, they already see this thing happening, okay? In 68, Nero, as you've heard all your life, who fiddled while Rome burned, committed suicide in 68 A.D. 69 A.D., we have what's called the year of the four emperors. It is a crazy, overturning, governmental, upside-down topside turned up, scramble for power. We have the emperor Galba, Otha, Vitellius, and Vespasian who all become emperors within one 12-month period after Nero. So within a two-year period, we have five Roman emperors that are scrambling for power 
And I want you to understand, when Vespasian finally, finally became emperor in 69, he had a Roman son by the name of Titus who was a general who ransacked, who, who led the army of, uh, of, of Rome against Jerusalem, burnt Jerusalem to the ground, and literally totally tore every stone of the temple down to the ground in 70 A.D., fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus said, this generation standing here will not pass until they see this happen. Okay, And the abomination of desolation with Titus was this. He literally catapulted a pig head and it landed right on the altar of sacrifice. Now you know how unholy pigs are to Jews. That's another fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. It happened 2,000 years ago. A lot of what people are saying are right around the corner before us and they've been saying my whole life, you know, look for the Antichrist. This stuff in, in Mark 13, in Matthew 24, happened in the generation that Jesus said it would. Okay? Number six, apocalyptic language in the prophets. All these astronomical events, the sun won't shine, the moon will not give its light. Literally, they describe governmental changes. Uh, a lot of the big hoopla that John Hagee's making right now over four blood moons and right in the middle of two and two is the solar eclipse. And he's telling you that probably the coming of the Lord is going to happen in 2014, 2015. I would love for that to happen. I, I, I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I believe He's coming back. But what happens when we keep prediction after prediction after prediction, seeing this happen, it ends up creating a body that's not mission-centered, but they've got their eye on the eastern gate, and we're so packed up, ready to go, with one foot on the rapture bus, that we're letting the world go to hell in a handbasket, and we're not trying to reach out and get our neighbors saved or change our communities for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it puts us in a place of being so heavenly-minded, as Mark Twain says, that we become no earthly good. And that's where the body of Christ in America has been for the last 75 years. Don't shout me down. It's exactly. Now, in case you think this is not correct, I want to give you biblical examples. Look with me to Isaiah 13. And we'll read it from the message first because it really gives it in a great way. The stars in the sky, the great parade of constellations, will be nothing but black holes. The sun will come up as a black disk and the moon a blank nothing. So that's Isaiah 13. Now, where am I getting this? Well, this is right here in this whole section uh, regarding... Um, Matthew, Mark 13. Listen, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaking. Shaken, okay? Now, I want to read that to you again from the ESV. Listen, this is the judgment of Babylon in Isaiah 13.1. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. This happens in Isaiah. It happens in Daniel. It happens in the book of Joel. It happens in the New Testament Gospels and it's again in the book of Revelation. And every time it's speaking about a tumultuous governmental change. It's an astronomical description that doesn't necessarily literally happen. At times in history it has. Let me just say this. The John Hagee four-blood moon thing that he's talking about has hit at times when dramatic things have happened. But what he doesn't tell you is that there are three other times in history where that very same astronomical sequence has hit, but nothing significant happened in world history. So what does he do when 2014-15 rolls past and another time the Lord hasn't returned 
and the body of Christ has one more black eye and the media is going, I wish they would fly their stupid, ignorant backsides out of here. Because I've heard people say that. They joked on Saturday Night Live about Christians and about the whole any minute rapture idea and we're made fun of because it's, it's perceived to be as, as hanging on to something that most solid Christians would tell you that's symbolic language that speaks of a governmental overthrow. Now that's happening in five emperors. He's literally saying this thing's going to be so tumultuous, there's going to be killing in the streets, fathers are going to give their sons over. Uh, you know, hope for you pregnant women that doesn't happen in the winter because you're going to have to run with a baby and you're going to have to try to find a place to hide. That was, that was Jerusalem in 68, 69, 70 AD when the Roman army was burning it to the ground and ransacking it. That was the tribulation like they have never seen before that the Lord said we would cut short or none of those elect would even be saved. Are you okay? No, I don't know. not sure. Don't, don't quite know what to think about it. Okay? Some of you just go, I don't know if I can take that. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. And remember, there are all kinds of folks that embrace these ideas different kinds of ways and doesn't mean that they're not Jesus-loving, God-centered, Bible-believing Christians. As a matter of fact, what I'm telling you right here is actually the majority of the body of Christ who believes this, this way. You've just never heard it taught that way because in the Bible Belt South, you've been taught that unless you believe in an any-minute rapture, you're a heretic. And that's not Scripture. Okay? Now, number seven, the coming of the Son of Man is not the return or the second coming. Look back with me, please, to Mark chapter 13, verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Listen. Jesus is actually quoting the book of Daniel one more time. This is what he says in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is dreaming. He says, My dream continued. I saw a human form, a son of man, arriving in a world of clouds. He came to the old one. The, the, the authorized translations say the ancient of days. It's the, it's the picture of Jesus coming up to God into heaven. Okay? He came to the old one and was presented to him. Go ahead. He was given power to rule all the glory of royalty. Everyone, race, color, and creed had to serve him. His rule would be forever, never ending. His kingly rule would never be replaced. Listen to it in the ESV. He says, And be, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, some of you say, well, what about though? I, okay, I can see that. Jesus is quoting Daniel and it's actually the description of him coming up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. 2,000 years ago at his ascension. Okay, But what about the angels being sent out to gather the elect? That's what's been happening for 2,000 years. Every Sunday morning I preach the gospel and the angels of God are calling the, those that he, he has spoken to and He's dealing with by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's drawing you in and calling you in to be part of that great company of the elect. It's been happening ever since then. Okay? All right. Number eight. We're, we're getting real close to ending. 
This generation will not pass until all these things take place. Now look at this. Here we go. Let me wrap up here. It says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now the dispensationalists teach that that's going to be the whole reestablishment of the nation of Israel. They say that's 1948, when the fig tree starts to sprout leaves. Okay? Now, granted, that's by far the, the minority report or belief, but that's what's become, begun to be believed, especially in the evangelical church. If you're Baptist or Pentecostal, that's pretty much what you've grown up thinking. Okay? So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Pass away. And so what they've done here with this is basically said, you're going to go 2,000 years until a nation of Israel gets reestablished again, and then the generation that is alive then, when the nation of Israel becomes set again in 1948. So that's the reason we had all the books that were being written when I was a kid, Hal Lindsey with The Late Great Planet Earth, Edgar Wissanot with 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, because every Bible theologian tells you that a generation is 40 years. So they went, 1948, the fig tree began to grow leaves. So 1988, we've got to be raptured out of here. Well, 1988 came and left. My pastor in North Carolina wrote a book before the summer ever hit, and he wrote a book called Why We Will Still Be Here, Why the Rapture Will Not Happen, September 13th through 15th, 1988. Kelly Varner a year before that happened, fought this mess and said it'll never happen, and he wrote a book, and that's who I was schooled under and raised and mentored under. Friends in Central Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas, were all studying the book by Wissanot together, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 88. The week before September 13th through 15th, they went and had their pets put to sleep because they didn't want their dogs and cats to be alive in the tribulation while they were going to be raptured out. They wake up on the 16th, they're still here, and Fido's dead. It happened. A lot of people are grief-stricken. What went wrong? Wissanot comes back and actually writes another book in 89 saying that his calculations were off. And it was 89 reasons why it will happen in 89. It just so happened to be the 89th was because it didn't happen in 88. <laughs> and it's like it's set up for another fall. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying this morning? Amen. So in the middle of all of this, uh, they realized that 88 and 89 passed. And then it was going to be Y2K. Jesus is coming back before 2000. Well, if you believe in a seven-year tribulation, it should have been by 93 because we've got to be gone for seven. Okay, 93 came and went. So they started saying, well, it wasn't 40 years from 48, but it was 40 years from 67. And the, the, the two big conflicts in what was the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, 67 and 73. So they started, and, and, and Jack Van Impe and all these guys redraw their prophecy charts, and they re-preach all their tapes, their CDs at this time, and everybody's still buying them en masse. Okay? And so he starts to say, it's not going to be 40 from 48, 40 to 88. It's going to be 40 from 67. So the big year is 2007. That's when the end of the world is. Well, so that means... That seven years prior, we got to be caught away, 2000, before the end of 2000, they started saying we're going to be raptured out before the end of 2000. It came and passed. 2007 came and passed. Okay, then it became 73, 
was Six-Day War and 67 Yom Kippur War, 73, all of these, these two big dates. And so they started saying it would be a generation from 73 in Israel. Well, that was last year, folks. This is 2014. Do y'all hate me this morning? Am I, am, I, am I rattling somebody's cage today? This is nonsense. And what, what tears my heart out is that there, are, that there are vulnerable, unwitting, unthinking Christians who keep buying these guys' tapes, who keep repainting their prophecy charts because they keep messing it up. And somewhere, some down the line, somewhere down the line, somebody's going to have to wake up and go, you know what, their hearts may be right, but their system that they keep setting dates from is completely messed up. Now, let me say this, and I'm really going to be finished here in about three minutes because I've said what I need to say. And today, if I've made you mad, just go ahead and forgive me right now. But get into the Bible. Acts 17 says, Be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see if these things be so. Okay? You search it. Don't take what I've said today other than just a challenge. If it's stirred you up and go, well, my granny used to, my, my dad, blah, blah, blah. Well, they're preachers in my family and they taught, well, you know what? We can all be wrong. And I'm not saying this morning that, that I am totally right and everybody else is wrong. But you need to be open to the fact that there are a lot of different kinds of ideas and when it really comes down to it, no man knows. My dear friend back here from the back, David McDaniel, one of our leaders from past, has been in Afghanistan for a number of years. And he, he brings a twist to this that's such a fascinating thing that he knows more about it than I do because he's been over there in Afghanistan saying that the Islamists teach that Jesus really is coming back and that he is a great prophet, he's a great teacher, but they don't, they don't believe that he's, that he's God the Son. They believe that he is a teacher and well-respected and that Jesus is coming back and he's going to say when he gets here, you can ask David, that Jesus will say, why did you make a religion out of my name and, and my practice if you don't bow right now and, and start to follow Muhammad and worship Allah, I'm going to strike all of you dead. That's what the Islamists teach. Okay, So it's a, it's a perversion of scripture. Uh, very interesting. That's the reason why we do have to keep our eyes open and be alert about what is going on in the Middle East because there is tribulation that is yet to come. Okay, here we go. This generation will not pass until all these things take place. The generation standing there, folks, because the subject of the whole chapter is the temple. Jesus is saying this generation will not pass until you see these things come to pass. Number nine, here we go. Whether your interpretation of this passage is historical which is what I just gave you this morning. Most of you have never heard that before in your life. Or if it's futuristic, which is what most in the room have heard. Either way, you can't get around no man knows that day or that hour. That's what I want to go every time somebody sells their house and buys three billboards in a city because Harold Camping has got them so stooped into believing that Jesus was coming last year. Okay, in May, I believe is what it was supposed to be. Okay, and then it didn't happen, and he reset his for October. And then October came and went. Go home and Google rapture predictions or rapture dates. You'll see over 200, and it's just, it's 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 nonsense. Okay, number 10, and I'm really finished this morning. David said, if you do this in under three hours, I'll be proud of you. And I've done it in about 45 minutes. So here we go. So you guys do not realize what a miracle that is. Okay, number 10. 
a historical understanding of this passage does not take away an application for us in 2014. Just because I interpret this as having already happened, every one of these things give me a principle. What is the principle? But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. Look at your neighbor and say, wake up. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So this morning, I want to say to the body of Christ, I want to say to you, wake up, be alert, be on your guard. Don't just believe anything that comes down the pike. Pray, even as I, they taught me in, as a young Pentecostal, stay prayed up. Walk with the Lord. Hear His voice. Spend time in His Word. Keep your hearts clear. Keep your sin confessed. What do I tell people? Live like He's coming in the next second, but live and prepare for another hundred years after you. Don't get so heavenly minded and ready. It's like a lot of the dispensationalists used to teach. Don't try to change culture or society or make any changes in your local community or hometown. They say that's like polishing brass on a sinking ship. That's what dispensation will do for you. It will totally move you away, and that's what the devil wants it to do. It will move you away from engagement with your community and in the world and trying to make change, trying to make a difference. And that's not this church. We're, we're, we're involved with, with families and battered women and the mission here and helping folks and the impoverished and trying to raise the bar in a lot of different kinds of ways. Do I believe Jesus is coming? I absolutely do with all of my heart. I'm just not going to utilize a faulty system to try to scare people into a relationship with Jesus because he's so wonderful. I want to tell you how amazing he is. He will change your life. He will, he will turn things around in your life. Listen, and this is the last thing as, as I finish this today. Remember, number one, here we go, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. There's room. In all things, charity. That's the old Bible word for love. So I need to love people even if they don't agree with my perspective on anything. Okay. Next, eschatology is a non-essential of the faith. It is not going to make a difference in your salvation. Now this is the last point and I'm finished. Read it out loud with me. Here we go. While one's view of the end doesn't affect one's salvation, it does affect how one lives right now. And that's the issue. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise.